while Bell Gunnis and H. H. Holmes may be two of the most recognisable names when it comes to serial killers who operated in the Victorian era, they are not the only ones. In fact, far from it, there were a huge number of mass slayers at the time, but many are overshadowed by the likes of Jack the Ripper. But just because they aren't as well known, doesn't mean that their victims' stories aren't as important or deserving of remembrance. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we'll be looking at just two of these forgotten serial killers from the 1800s. Manuel Blanco Romasanta. Born in Escos, Spain on November 18th, 1809, Manuel Blanco Romasanta is Spain's first recorded serial killer. He was one of five children, born to relatively wealthy parents, but an unnamed birth defect appeared to throw his early life into confusion when he was wrongly identified as a female upon his birth. For the first six years of his life, Manuel was named Manuela and was dressed and educated as a female would be. After being identified as a male, Manuel's life did not get any easier. He was already treated differently due to his birth defect, so the added complexity of being thought of as a female, then a male, made his upbringing that much more complicated. Remember, this was a much more judgmental and prejudiced era. Although he came from a well-off family, Manuel's parents made little time for him. He excelled in education, however, and quickly learned how to read and to write. By the time Manuel reached his mid-teens, he had stopped growing. He is estimated to have been somewhere between four foot six and four foot 11. As an adult, Manuel attempted to lead a normal life. He worked as a tailor and got married, but when his wife suddenly passed away in 1833, he traded in his traditional lifestyle for one which would take him on the road, and he became a traveling salesman who ventured throughout Spain and Portugal, before becoming a guide to those who wanted to pass through the mountains of Castile. In 1844, Manuel's life took a shocking turn when he was charged with the murder of a man named Vincent Fernandez, a constable in Leon who was trying to collect a debt from Manuel. The debt was owed to a supplier in Ponferrada for the purpose of merchandise. However, Manuel could not be arrested because he fled the area using a fake passport and the name Antonio Gomez. Although he was not present at the trial, it went ahead and he was sentenced in absentia to 10 years in prison. After this, Manuel lived on the run knowing that a decade behind bars awaited him if he got caught. He continued to travel around and even spent time near his hometown and spent years living and working without being apprehended. He befriended local women with ease and took on jobs that were not common for men at the time, including making yarn, cleaning, and cooking. This gave other men the impression that he was effeminate and he was said to be too gentle. Sometime after this, Manuel returned to work as a guide in the mountains. Then, over a period of years, in the town that Manuel had settled in and in the surrounding area, 
people began to go missing. For a while, these disappearances were kept relatively quiet because Manuel was writing home to the families of those who had gone missing, writing as their loved ones and keeping up the pretense that they were still traveling. This kept suspicion at bay for some time. When the vanishings were finally noticed, nobody suspected that Manuel was involved as there was simply no connection between him and the missing. When the bodies began to be found, some had been so brutally mutilated that their family members couldn't even identify them. Suspicions slowly started to grow. Whispers started, claiming that Manuel was killing people and selling their belongings. But it wasn't until 1852 that the first formal accusation came out against him. The allegation said he'd used the body fat of his victims to make soap, which he then sold. This was later proven to be true. In September that year, Manuel was arrested in Nombella. He was later transferred to the town of Alares, where he was put on trial for 13 murders. His victims were between the ages of 10 and 47. At the start of the trial, the now 43-year-old admitted guilt to all 13 cases. However, he claimed he was not responsible for any of them, for he was suffering a curse which caused him to turn into a wolf. Manuel went on to say that the first time he transformed, he was in the mountains and was approached by two wolves. He stated that during his transformation, he fell to the ground and his body began to convulse before he rolled over three times. He claimed to have spent five days as a wolf before he and the two others turned back into their human forms. The other two men were supposedly named Antonio and Don and Manuel explained that they were also cursed and the trio ate people when they got hungry. Even in the mid 19th century, in the middle of a famine and the population's sanity worsening, Manuel's story was heavily disbelieved by the courts. The prosecutor asked him to transform and to prove it, but the 43 year old claimed that he could not transform any longer because the curse lasted 13 years and had expired in the week prior to his trial. Manuel was acquitted of four of the murders because they were found to be the result of an actual wolf attack. But the other nine victims showed signs of being butchered by a human, and so he was convicted of them all. The trial lasted seven months and concluded on April 6th, 1853. The resulting court transcript was around 2,000 pages long. Manuel was sentenced to death via garrote. Then, a man known only as Mr. Phillips wrote to the Spanish Minister of Justice, claiming that the 45-year-old was suffering from clinical lycanthropy, a psychiatric syndrome that involves the delusion that the sufferer can transform into, or simply is, an animal. Mr. Phillips claimed that he could treat Manuel with hypnosis. The identity of this Mr. Phillips is not confirmed, but it is believed that he was a French physician who was living in London at the time, who had been exiled to the UK and later returned to France under the pseudonym Mr. Phillips. The minister then wrote to the Queen of Spain, Isabella II, who personally commuted Manuel's sentence in May of 1854 to allow experts to study the case. From here, Manuel was transferred to a prison in Salanova, where the 45-year-old was reported to have passed away shortly after arriving. There are mixed stories about Manuel's end, with some saying he was shot by a prison guard who wanted to see him transform, and others saying he simply passed away from an illness. Since the records from the prison where he ended up no longer exist, there have been several attempts to discover Manuel's true fate, 
including two newspaper articles in 2011 that stated he had died on December 14, 1863 from stomach cancer. Modern theories about Manuel propose that he had antisocial personality disorder or perhaps had an intersex condition. Manuel was never suspected of having a hand in his wife's demise, and his tale inspired two movies in Spain. He has now reportedly become a part of Spanish folklore as the werewolf of Alaris and is known as the Tallow Man, a nickname he earned from his time spent making soap from the fat of his victims. Although his case is largely forgotten outside of Spain, he is perhaps one of the most gruesome serial killers of the 19th century. John Edward Ruloff. John Edward Ruloff, who is also known to go by the surname Rulofson, was born on July 9th, 1820 in New Brunswick, Canada. He was known for having several careers across the span of his life, including a lawyer, schoolmaster, photographer, and philologist, but was perhaps known most notably as a career criminal. A self-taught linguist who had mastered several languages, he was considered an extremely intelligent but dangerous individual. John is also known as the Man of Two Lives, which stemmed from a biography written on his life in 1871, and as the Genius Killer, a name which followed the discovery of his large brain after he passed away. John's brain is reportedly the second largest on record and is currently on display at the Wilder Brain Collection in the Psychology Department of Cornell University in New York. Although not much is known about John's upbringing, we know that his parents were German immigrants and that he had a brother named William who went on to become a successful photographer. By the time John was 20, he'd worked in a law firm and served two years in prison for embezzlement, cementing his status as the man of two lives. In 1842, John moved to Dryden in upstate New York, where he worked as a school teacher and studied botanical medicine with Dr. Henry Bull. The following year, the 20-something married Dr. Bull's 17-year-old cousin, a girl named Harriet Shutt. The couple ditched the traditional formal courtship and their marriage went against the Shutt's family wishes, who didn't want the pair to marry because John was of a lower social standing. Regardless of this, they married on December 31st, 1843. John was noted to be a possessive and jealous husband. Weeks after they married, he reportedly hit his wife with a pestle and frequently beat her. Reportedly, he once saw Harriet kiss Dr. Bull, and he subsequently pulled her aside and pulled a vial from his pocket, telling her it contained poison. He claimed it was the same one he'd used to kill his niece and sister-in-law, who had died while in his medical care. John was supposed to treat the pair after they caught an infection, but they are thought to be the first victims in his killing spree. John told Harriet to drink the poison and they would die together. However, his wife began screaming desperately for help instead, so he attempted to calm her down and told her it was all a simple joke. Despite the dangerous nature of their relationship, Harriet stayed with John and the couple moved to Lansing, New York, where Harriet gave birth to a baby girl named Priscilla. 
John wanted his family to move further away from the Schutz, and on June 22, 1844, the couple fought about this. John tried to pressure Harriet into moving to Ohio, where he planned to go into law or teaching, but she refused and threatened to return to her family with the baby. In return, John accused his wife of having an affair with Dr. Bull before fatally hitting her on the head with a large, heavy pestle. After this, John decided he would commit suicide, but found that he simply couldn't. The next day, he borrowed a horse and wagon from his neighbors on the pretense of returning a large chest to his uncle. His neighbors watched as he placed a large sack into the wagon, and they noticed that John headed off towards Cayuga Lake, which was in the opposite direction of where he said he was going. When he returned, the chest was still in the wagon, but the sack was gone. John told his neighbors that he and the family would be out of town for a few weeks and reportedly left his house in disarray. When he returned, rumors were circulating that John had killed his wife and child. Although he denied this, the Schutt family then confronted him. Although John at first said that Harriet had left him, he later changed his story to say that the trio had moved to Ohio but the family did not accept these excuses, especially since all of Harriet's clothing and belongings still remained in the home she had shared with John. Although he then attempted to flee the city once more, John was pursued by his brother-in-law. During this time, he traveled through Geneva, Rochester, and Buffalo before his brother-in-law found him and apprehended him in Cleveland. John was then brought to Ithaca so he could stand trial. Cayuga Lake was dredged for signs of either Harriet's or Priscilla's body, but neither could be found. Since the grand jury was unwilling to indict John for a murder without a body, he was charged instead with kidnapping. At his 1846 trial, John acted as his own defense attorney, focusing on the lack of evidence that the prosecution had that a crime had even been committed. Nevertheless, he was found guilty of kidnapping and sentenced to 10 years in prison. While in jail, John did not waste his time. He studied philology, the study of the historical development and structure of languages, and formulated his own theory about language evolution, which he intended to publish when he was released from prison. He was even given special permission to teach others in his cell. John's future plans started to crumble, however, when he was informed that Tompkin County planned to charge him with murder upon his release. So he countered this by claiming double jeopardy and began a legal battle from jail. The DA dropped the charges for Harriet's murder and instead replaced it with Priscilla's. Although John was found guilty in 1858, he escaped custody before he could be sentenced. It is widely believed that his escape was aided by one of two people. It was either Albert Jarvis, the son of Ithaca's undersheriff, who'd been tutored by John in Greek and Latin and who would later go on to become his partner in crime, or by Jane, Albert's mother, who'd befriended John and who claimed that he couldn't possibly be guilty of slaying his wife and child. John fled west. He reportedly fed on wild nuts and food stolen from farms. During his time as a fugitive, he lost two toes to frostbite. When he reached Pennsylvania, he quickly made connections and impressed the higher-ups at Jefferson College, who offered him a professorship, but then he received a letter from Albert Jarvis, who claimed that he and his mother were penniless and needed help. Albert threatened John if he didn't help them, so John went on to burglarize a jewelry store, where he was caught and sent back to Ithaca. 
Despite the fact that multiple charges were piling up against the 38-year-old, he managed to get acquitted from his murder conviction and was released when authorities decided not to prosecute further. After this, John moved to New York City, where he and Albert Jarvis got by as career criminals, stealing from wherever and whoever they could. In 1861, John spent a further two years in prison, where he would meet William Dexter, whom he utilized as a partner in his criminal activities. The next robbery that the trio planned was that of a dry goods store in New York on August 17th, 1870. Two employees, Frederick Merrick and Gilbert Burroughs, slept upstairs while the three men broke in. They burned chloroform to keep the employees sleeping, but they awoke anyway when Albert Jarvis stumbled on something. Merrick attempted to shoot at the burglars, but after the gun failed to discharge, he grabbed a stool and threw it at the men instead. John was already beginning to run from the scene, but William Dexter was grabbed by Burroughs and the two store employees began to beat him. Albert and John returned to save William with John firing a warning shot into the air. The store employees didn't stop, however, even after a second shot, so John pulled the trigger on Merrick, killing him instantly. The three burglars made their escape, but by this point, they had missed the boat which would take them across the Chenango River. They attempted to swim across, but both Albert and William succumbed to the current, with only John making it to the other side alive. He apparently left his shoes on the shore and left distinct footprints which showed that he was missing two toes, a vital clue for law enforcement. The bodies of the other men were recovered the following morning. Meanwhile, the remaining store employee, Gilbert Burroughs, alerted police to what had happened, and the next day, law enforcement began rounding up men who appeared to be suspicious. John put a target on his back when he refused to give his name to a police officer and instead ran across the nearby railroad tracks and was found in a farm's outhouse. John tried to pass himself off as one of his many aliases, using the name Charles Augustus, and later the name George Williams. He was brought before the two bodies of his accomplices from the burglary and denied knowing them, but he was recognized by an onlooker, a judge who remembered him from the murders of his wife and child. John's new trial began in January of 1871, and it became a media sensation, drawing in thousands of spectators. Once again, John, now aged 50, led his own defense. He was found guilty on March 3rd and was sentenced to be hanged. While on death row, he finally admitted to killing his wife and described her demise in great detail. However, he did not admit to executing three-month-old Priscilla, leaving many to wonder if he gave her over to family members to be cared for. John Ruloff was executed on May 18, 1871. Despite being given the label of genius, many believe John was simply a fraud and a pretender, although there is no denying that he was a talented conman who had managed to escape justice on numerous occasions and had swung himself excellent, well-paid positions despite having very little in the way of actual qualifications. In recent years, John Ruloff's legacy has mostly faded into obscurity. A bar named after him was opened in Ithaca in 1977, but has since closed down. John was the last man to be executed by public hanging in the state of New York. The fate of Priscilla, John's daughter, 
remains unknown, and neither her body nor her mother's have ever been found. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.